The Secret Church Podcast is a resource from Radical.net. For The Secret Church 15 study guide and other resources that go along with this audio, visit Radical.net slash SC15. This is Secret Church 15, Episode 4. Orphans and Widows. So... I mentioned that I've shared many times. Many people know our story. Just a quick recap. Uh, my wife, Heather, and I have uh, four kids. We tried for about five years to have kids to no avail. God ended up leading us down a path of adoption, which at first we thought was second best, but we realized real quick that this was just as best. And we adopted our first son, Caleb, from Kazakhstan, whose ninth birthday is Sunday. And we got back home with Caleb. And two weeks later, found out that Heather was pregnant, to our surprise. And uh, so Joshua, our second son, came along nine months later, knew we wanted to adopt again. Also, obviously, I had discovered at that point that we were able to have children biologically, so we started the adoption process again. And for three years, God didn't provide children that way, but he led us on a process to China to adopt our daughter. And during that time, uh, came back and three months later, found out that Heather was pregnant again with our third son, Isaiah. So Heather's doctor said, if you adopt four, you'll have eight. We said, oh, uh, I don't know if that's the way it works. Bro, so uh, when, when people hear our story, they'll tell us, oh, I hear about that happening all the time. It must be some emotional trigger or something physical that causes that. And I, we simply don't agree, not that I know all of the factors at work, but I am convinced that God withheld children from us in one way in order to lead us to an obscure city on the other side of the world in Kazakhstan to a little boy we never would have met otherwise. And we celebrate his birthday together. This way. And he did this because he loves the orphan. And for that matter, he loves the widow. Deuteronomy 10, 17 and 18. Just hear the majesty and the power of God described and see it connected with the orphan and the widow. The Lord your God is a God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial, takes no bribe. He executes justice. How does he show his might and how awesome he is? By executing justice for the fatherless and the widow. This is all over scripture. You just think about God and the lonely. And when I use the term lonely there, I'm referring specifically to those who have lost or maybe never had a significant member of their family, namely a mom or dad or a husband. Father of the followers and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary, i.e. those who are alone, in a home, Psalm 68. So I got excerpts here from the whole book of Ruth, which I wish we had time to dive in tonight. Probably my favorite book in all the Old Testament, where we see that God seeks the lonely as his family. So the book of Ruth, Boaz is a reflection of God's character, seeking after a widow, really two widows, Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi, is his own family. He saved the lonely from harm, protecting Ruth and his field and providing for her and Naomi. He served the lonely at his table. Ruth unexpectedly finds herself on a first date at Boaz's barley grill for eating bread and dipping morsels together in the wine. It's romantic. All followed by in the next chapter, Ruth chapter three, which I didn't include here, kind of an interesting night on the threshing floor, but all sets the stage for one day when Boaz showers the lonely with his grace as a picture of how God showers The solitary with his grace. A beautiful story of God's design to care for the outcast, the stranger, the widow, the lonely as his own. So with that stage set, think about God God and the orphan. All throughout the Old Testament, God places priority on care for the father. The Psalm 10, Psalm 27, I love this verse. Psalm 27, 10, though my father and mother have forsaken me, the Lord will take me in. Which is why when you get the New Testament, you see God commanding care for the orphan and the widow through the church. Religion that pure, it's pure and defiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. 
So very simply, I want you to think about how the gospel, so connected, uniquely compels care for orphans. Think about gospel foundations. Even in our lives as Christians, by God's grace, we've been adopted as sons of God, as sons of God, which is what Galatians 4 or 5 teaches. We might receive adoption as sons. You look at that, those two verses, you see that adoption requires someone who comes at the right time, possesses the right qualification, has the right resolve. So you don't adopt accidentally. We didn't stumble into Kazakhstan. That was pretty intentional. So you, you don't a- adopt accidentally. You adopt purposely, which is exactly what God has done. Ephesians chapter 1. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Praise God, he determined to redeem us. He died to rescue us, to adopt us. So by God's grace, we've been adopted as sons of God. And for God's glory, we've been given the privileges of sonship. Which is why we're talking about sons here and not just children generally. Yes, I know we're talking about men and women, but the whole picture in the New Testament and New Testament cultural background is with sons who received full inheritance in a family. And that's why we see sons mentioned like this because men and women together, we all have full inheritance, full privileges of sonship. So this is the beauty. Position is not what this is all about. As great as that is, and yes, the gospel could stop here. We would fall to our knees and worship. But the gospel doesn't stop here. The gospel doesn't just say, justified, you're forgiven, and now go on with your life. The gospel doesn't just say you've got a new position. Instead, the whole picture is we've got privileges that we enjoy. Because your sons, Galatians 4, 6, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. We cry, Abba, Father, you're no longer a slave, but a son and a son and an heir through God. All who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. You really receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You receive the spirit of sonship by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. If we're children, we're heirs, heirs with God and co-heirs with Christ. Even indeed, we may share in his sufferings. One day we'll share in his glory, Romans 8. So let me assure you, Caleb, Mary Ruth, our daughter, when they became our son and daughter, that was not the end of the story. That was the beginning of an entirely new story. So these two children know that I'm their father. They're my children, not because of the love we showed years ago in traveling to adopt them, because the love of the, we showed them this morning when they got up out of bed. So with God, yes, your position in him is based on the day when you first trusted in him to save you, but your life is based on a living relationship with him in which he showers you with new mercies every single morning. And all day long, into the night, Christian, moment by moment, day by day, we live in the reality that God is our Father. We pray our Father in heaven who loves us. See what kind of love the Father has given us. We should be called children of God. He understands us. He provides for us. You don't have no reason to worry about anything. Your Father places value on you as his child. He loves to give. He loves to forgive. He forgives us. Do we still sin against him? Dreadfully, yes. But praise God, we have a father who forgives. He forgives us. He disciplines us. And this is good. This is, it's good for me to discipline my children. They've disobeyed a couple of times, just a couple of times, the four of them combined. But uh, when they discipline me, they disobey me. It is good for me to discipline them. And it's good for God to discipline us. He leads us. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. He's our father and we are his children which means we have a new name. We're children of God. We have a new spirit, his spirit. We have access to the Father's presence. We can go to him any place, anytime, now and forever. Access to his presence and we have an inheritance in the Father's kingdom. Oh, Christian brother, sister, you do not need to run after the things, the pleasures, the pursuits, possessions of this world. You have a kingdom waiting for you from a father in heaven who is delighted to give it to you. Romans 8, 16 and 17. 
So what are the implications of this? They're clear. We worship God, our Father. We pray our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We glorify God, our Father. We imitate God, our Father. Be imitators of God as beloved children. We obey God, our Father, and we reflect God, our Father. He's father of the fatherless, protector of widows, so we visit orphans and widows in their affliction. You know what's interesting? You might circle that word visit in James 1.27 because it's used 11 times in the New Testament and then a few times in the Old Testament Greek translation, and it literally means to look out for someone. So it's not just go visit somebody casually, but to visit someone with a responsibility to care for them, with a concern for their well-being and a commitment to caring for their well-being. So this is what religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is, to care for, to take responsibility for orphans and widows in their distress. And so I put in, in your guide just other places where that word's used. And you look at them in the midst of their wanderings in Egypt. Joseph, before he dies, promises his brothers that God will visit them. He'll care for them and take responsibility for bringing them home. Genesis 50. Psalm 8. Psalm 106. The same words you just describe how God will visit his people to save them. You get to the New Testament. Luke 1. You see it in Christ. God has visited and redeemed his people. Luke 1, 76 through 79. God brings his light into the darkness when he visits them from on high. Jesus is teaching in Luke 7 that people exclaim, God has visited his people. Acts 7 refers to how Moses visited the children of Israel when they were slaves in Egypt to lead them out into freedom. Acts 15 recounts how God was visiting the Gentiles and he came to provide salvation for them. Paul told Barnabas he wanted to visit the churches they planted, to care for them, to look after them. When you get to Matthew 25, Jesus tells the story of people who are visiting the sick in prison. It's a powerful statement. He says, when you visited them, you visited me. So this, this word visit is a great word to seek out someone in order to care for them. And God says, this is what you do for orphans. When you understand that word in James 1 and 27, you realize that God is serious about his people looking after the orphan. And it's interesting, it's interesting, this word also has in the Greek a couple of antonyms, opposites. And those antonyms, opposites, are to forget, to willfully or completely neglect, to refuse to look after. So the picture is that not to look after is to neglect, not to care for is to forget. So the options are clear. Either we visit orphans or we neglect orphans. Either we care for orphans or we forget orphans. And with millions of orphans in the world, ignorance is inexcusable. Without question, one of the lessons I learned in the adoption process in my own life, I'd read the statistics, I'd seen the numbers of orphans in the world, and they're overwhelming, but they're, they were just numbers to me until I got to an orphanage in Kazakhstan and I saw children playing outside and I walked past the rooms inside and suddenly those numbers on a page came alive in my heart and I realized this was Caleb sleeping in one of those cribs and it was Caleb who was included in those numbers and all of a sudden the numbers became very real and very personal and I learned that orphans are easier to forget until you see their faces. And they're easier to forget until you know their names. And it's easier to pretend they're not there until you hold them in your arms. But once you do, everything changes. So, church, are you willing to see their faces? And are you willing to get to know their names? And are you willing to hold them in your arms? And as a result, are you willing to look after them? In light of this word visited in James 1.27 and its antonyms, it's clear, inaction is action. So may we not forget. Let's not overlook. Why? Because of the gospel. This is huge. So ministry to orphans is not mere humanitarianism. This is not about altruism. And this is important because there's a lot of orphan care going on today, particularly in our church and our culture, even church culture, that in many ways is selfish and humanistic. It's almost trendy or cool to care for orphans. Even people start the process of adoption or otherwise because it seems attractive based on a moving video of needy children. Maybe we just like the thought of having an adorable family picture to send out with a Christmas card. A cute little child from another country. Here's the problem though. What are you going to do when that child you adopt, the child you bring in your home is not so cute? And that child has fetal alcohol syndrome and you can't even sit and can't even sit still for your family picture while without throwing a tantrum. 
What happens when that child's mom was addicted to crack cocaine? And as a result, that child has permanent brain damage that affects their behavior the rest of their life and their teenage years turn into a living nightmare for you and your family. What happens when the years that that child has spent in an institutional orphanage by themselves causes them not to know how to even begin to receive love? So every time you try to show it, they resist it. What happens when the child you adopt is dangerous? Mere altruism won't carry you in those circumstances. Only the gospel will, because in the gospel, you realize that there was a day when you yourself were a child of wrath, filled with evil desires, unable to control your sinfulness, in need of a savior who would love you through the depth of your wickedness. And he did, by his grace, he adopted you as his own. So now when you see a child that nobody else wants, because nobody else can even begin to handle the issues that are found there, you care for that child. Why? Because of the cross of Jesus Christ. Don't miss this. We care for orphans, not because we're rescuers. We're not a group of good, altruistic people out to be saviors for orphans around the world. That's not what drives orphan ministry. We care for orphans, not because we're rescuers. We care for orphans because we are the rescued. We're the ones who found ourselves in a pit of sin and death with nothing in us to attract Christ to us, headed to an eternal hell, and God reached down and saved us and called us his children. So now it just makes sense to love the unlovable, to care for the uncontrollable. It just makes sense to persevere through long hours and long days and long weeks and long years years and the challenges that foster care and adoption may bring. I don't, I don't mean to paint an awful picture here of orphans here around the world. Some adoption processes are smooth as can be for family and child, but there are families across. I know the Church of Brook Hills who can testify this is not an easy path. Teenagers across the Church of Brook Hills who've grown up as orphans in difficult circumstances and adjusting to families has not been easy for them. And the point is, regardless of where we were born or where our family background is, we all need the gospel. Not one of us is a rescuer. Christ is the rescuer, and we all need to be rescued by him and then a reflection of him. God and the orphan, which leads right into God and the widow. Just as God places a high priority on care for the orphan, he places high priority on care for the widow. James 1.27, not just about orphans, for the widows. So look, look at gospel-driven foundations, gospel-driven instructions here. First, gospel foundations, all over scripture. See the care of the father for the widow. He's protector of the widows. Exodus 22, really strong. You shall not mistreat any widow or father's child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. My wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword. Deuteronomy 10 and on and on and on. See the care of the father for the widow. See the compassion of the son for the widow. Christ comes on the scene in the New Testament and care for the widow is evident in his life and his ministry. The widow at Nain in Luke 7. Here's warning to the scribes and Pharisees, his commendation of the widow in Mark 12. His care for Mary in John 19. The life of Christ reflects the heart of the Father, which is intended by God to be translated over to the church. See the concern of the church for the widow. Evident in the early church in Acts 6, where they choose leaders to make sure to attend to the needs of widows. The picture of Tabitha and the widows in Acts 9. In addition to instructions like James 1.27, we come to explicit instructions, instructions in 1 Timothy 5, where Paul says, honor widows who are truly widows. And he goes on to give almost a whole chapter of specific instructions saying, honor destitute widows through support, and I put a quote there from Bruce Winter just to give you a little background on how a widow would become destitute in the first century. And I want you to notice here, in light of that context, that there are qualifications on what, on, on what widows the church should care for. Paul doesn't just say, any woman who's a widow, do this for them, and the church should do that for every widow in the world. Instead, Paul specifically addresses care for widows in the church. He says some of them need to be supported. Now, here's the qualifiers. They must be devoid of relatives, 1 Timothy 5, 4. If a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. So Paul is specifically talking about a widow who's truly all alone, who doesn't have any physical family to support her. If she does, the Bible says, and that family should support her. So sons and daughters, biblically, support their parents and grandparents. 
A widow's children and grandchildren have that primary responsibility or other members of a family. So there's a clear mandate here to Christian families to care for, 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 for widows if there are widows in your family. This pleases God and demonstrates the gospel. And it relieves the church. So in other words, the church is not intended to be the first line of defense. Family is to take precedent whenever possible. So devoid of relatives who are supporting them, they must be dependent on God, who've set their hope in God, 1 Timothy 5, 5, trusting in him, Jeremiah 49, much like the widow at Zarephath in 1 Kings 17, dependent on God, and they must be devoted to prayer. Paul says she continues in supplications and prayer, night and day, not self-indulgent, but Christ-centered. And the picture is wonderful here. The images of Christian widows with a, a unique devotion to prayer, pr- uniquely given to praying without ceasing, like Anna the prophetess, or a quote there from Susan Hunt that seems so applicable just to, to helping think through, particularly older women who are widows and the responsibilities that they don't have for raising children then being devoted in all the more to prayer. So the word calls widows in these types of situations to devote themselves to the ministry of prayer and intercession. So churches support widows in situations like this, financially, physically, and otherwise. Honor destitute widows through support. Then the Bible says, enlist older widows for service. Paul oftentimes addresses older women just like he does in Titus 2, you get to 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 9, he addresses a unique group of widows that are enrolled. And there's debate about what Paul's talking about there. Um, but it seems to be that what Paul's addressing is older widows that he's calling to service in the church, much like in 1 Timothy 3. And he's putting qualifications on how they might serve in that capacity. He says they must be mature women. So he's talking specifically there about older women. He mentions in 1 Timothy 5, at least 60 years of age, which is probably not a hard and fast rule, more of a reference to women who are beyond the ability to work and support themselves, maybe less likely to remarry, which we'll talk about in a second. The Bible says they must be mature women, have been faithful wives, must care for children, be a hospitable host, humble servants, unselfish, and they must be kind, devoted to good works. And Paul's saying there's a unique opportunity for widows like this to serve in the church, to lead out in service in the church. So he's calling widows to maximize their time on earth through service in the church, while at the same time to call the church to honor widows by supporting them as they do that. And then you get down to verse 11 in 1 Timothy 5, and Paul talks about younger widows, and he says, encourage younger widows to marry. Now, again, Paul is addressing specific circumstances in 1 Timothy, and we know that because there's other times in 1 Corinthians, like 1 Corinthians 7, which we'll talk about later, where Paul seems to encourage single women to stay single. So the background here is important. You had, you had false teaching that was going on at Ephesus where women were, being, women were being encouraged by false teachers to avoid marriage, to neglect their roles, responsibility in the home. And as a result, you had women, including many younger widows, who were causing problems in the church. And Paul says very pointedly two things. First, widows must avoid laziness, and they must abhor gossip because apparently that's what was happening there in Ephesus. So I think it's important for us to to learn from this text that there are differences between younger widows and older widows. Younger widows having a greater likelihood to remarry than older widows. It's not that younger widows are commanded in the New Testament, you have to remarry, but the New Testament is teaching it's good to remarry, you're free to remarry, to carry out the privileges and responsibilities of a wife and mom and another marriage. I know that's a struggle for many who sometimes wonder, is it okay to remarry? And I believe scripture is saying very clearly, it's good. It's one of the primary reasons Paul says don't enroll younger widows in that particular type of service because they're more likely to remarry and be unable to carry out that service that's unique to a widow. So younger, widow, to, to a younger widows. So younger widows are simply more likely to remarry than older widows. But even if they don't remarry, even if you're a younger widow and you don't remarry, Paul's saying, the Bible's saying, avoid idleness, avoid gossip, spend your life for the good of your family, for the church. As you need support, look first to your family, then to the church, and God, the defender of the widow, is committed to providing for your every need. 
And then for older widows who may be less likely to marry, it's certainly not that it's wrong to remarry, but it may be less likely. Scripture is encouraging you to seek the Lord diligently in prayer and to serve the church with the unique opportunities that are before you. In the end, the gospel compels families to care for their relatives. In the words of John Calvin, before the church has to carry the burden, let the children do their duty. Care for your relatives. And those, then for those who have no relatives, the gospel compels churches to care for the widowed. 1 Timothy 5, 16. With both younger widows and older widows, the church, the body of Christ should go out of its way to make sure that widows are loved and supported and nourished and encouraged and cared for and provided in their midst. Let me put all this together. I shared a little bit about adoption in our family. And just about 10 years ago, I received a devastating call from my brother that my dad, my best friend in so many ways, had just unexpectedly died from a heart attack. And I can still feel the pain I had that night and how it progressed in the days to come in a way that periodically comes back unexpectedly on various days. But amidst the severity of grief in those moments, I also experienced the comfort of God's presence as the people of God immediately surrounded my brothers, my sister, my mom in powerful ways. I can still remember specific people hugging me, praying for me, driving me to Atlanta. Friends who came to visit my family went out of their way to be at that funeral. Even today, years later, I received texts, emails, calls from people who take the time to pray for, encourage me in ways my dad would have. And we've said continually as a family, I cannot imagine going through that grief without the church around us. And I am convinced that God has uniquely designed his church to care in these ways for the orphan and the widow. I've seen it in the church that God's given me the privilege to pastor. I've seen it in my own family. I've seen it in widows and families who've stepped up in foster care, who families who've adopted uh, adopted children and families who've supported those who are adopting or doing fostering. The church, by the grace of God, has unique resources from God to care for the orphan and the widow. And we must take seriously our responsibility to reflect the love of the father to the fatherless and the protector of the widow to the culture around us. Christ's call to action in light of orphans and widows. Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes from Secret Church and thousands of other free resources at Radical.net.